1: get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Hello and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is a podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have an executive pastry chef on the show to talk about innovation in the dessert world, her famous Fabergé egg creation, and what it's like to judge creepy culinary creations. She is an internationally acclaimed pastry chef named a woman to watch by L.A. Confidential magazine and a judge on Halloween Baking Championship. It's Stephanie Boswell. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to dive in about everything with your life because I feel like we have a lot to cover. Of, of course, Food Network fans have been watching you as a judge on Halloween Baking Championship, which we will get to. But let's start with a fun fact. Do you really have a Michelin
3: star tattoo? I have two of them. You have two. I have two of them. Yeah, uh, on either on either hand. I got these after working in Chicago because while in Chicago, I worked for two restaurants that achieved a Michelin star each. And it was one of the most gratifying, challenging experiences. And I wanted to remember it for the rest of my life. And I wanted to put it on my hands because, you know, I work with my hands every day. And there's something to the idea of, of always looking down and looking at what your goals are and keeping that in sight. So I thought if I'm always looking at my hands and I'm always sort of working with them, having that as being a constant goal and a constant mark of, of what's possible with hard work and a good attitude and pushing through. So I, I put them there permanently because most of my tattoos are very kind of scrapbooky in a way. You know, like they're not trendy. They're not nothing tribal, nothing like that. It's not based on what's the cool tattoo of the moment. It's all moments in my life that have been impactful for me or things I wanted to remember and hold dear. So, you know, I get a lot of tattoos on vacations or places I've lived or, you know, moments in my life that I wanted to remember. So my body has sort of become this amalgamation of all these different pieces of art and things that I like.
2: That's so cool. Do you have other other ones that are related to, you know, cooking and pastry and
3: anything like that? I do. I do. One of the the most notable ones that I get asked about a lot is on my forearm. It's the chemical composition for sugar because, you know, when I was in college, initially I studied everything. I was one of those one of those kids that was like, you know, changing majors. <laughs> as often as I changed socks. When I finally, you know, left college and and just sort of decided I I wanted to cook for a living. I wanted to take this kind of leap of faith and my brother actually, who's, you know, one of my best friends in the entire world, I told him about it and he said, you know, it's better to be at the bottom of a ladder you want to climb than halfway up one you don't. And so I enrolled in culinary school and and then started working in kitchens and things like that simultaneously. And when I realized, like, this is what solidly, concretely realized this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, I got the tattoo on my arm, on my forearm specifically, because at that point in time, cooking wasn't really fashionable, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of cool now to be a chef, right? Mm-hmm. But at that point, it was very much considered tradecraft. craft. So my family, my mom specifically, was was sort of appalled that I wanted to cook for a living. You know, she wanted me to be president of the United States at some point. So to her telling her I wanted to cook for a living was just insane. But I knew that if I put this this tattoo on my forearm, you know, I I couldn't get a job at a bank. I couldn't get, you know, I, at that point in time, you couldn't have a square sort of like nine to five job if you had visible tattoos. And so it was sort of like branding myself of this is what I want to do. I'm making the commitment. I can't work any other job. <laughs> There's no turning back. <laughs> There's no turning back. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't because now I've got, I've got this on my arm and I love it. And it's gotten a lot of attention. And it's really, it's funny to see because every now and again I'll meet somebody that's like, Studied, you know, organic chemistry or something like that in college. And they just look at me and go, oh, sugar. Oh, that's cool. Why do you have that? It's like they know nothing about me, but they know the tattoo. Yeah,
2: it's a good conversation starter at the, at the very least. Let's start it, you know, in Chicago, that time in your life. As you mentioned, you got the the two Michelin star tattoos because you were at two restaurants that received them, True and Naha. Um, what do you remember about those days kind of starting out in your career?
3: They were hard. It was my first sort of... into, into fine dining. So it was challenging, you know, and fortunately I was young. I was, you know, in my, in my early twenties. And so I had good knees and good hips, you know, (laughs) and I could, and I could just run and bust through walls. And at that point in time, I sort of, you know, realized like my value comes from the fact that I am so, tenacious and so stubborn. And I will put a shoulder through a wall if I have to, to get the job done. Because at that point in time, when you're just starting out, like you kind of suck, you know, like most (laughs) people, like there's no, like, I don't know any real like prodigies of the craft. Like, you know, there's people that can be born with an incredible palette and an incredible ability to identify color and balance and things like that. But knowing how to work in a kitchen is a very different animal. And the sort of logistics of that The trick to it that I found early on was just work really, really hard. Just outwork everybody that you possibly can, because that's where your value lies and learn as much as you can. You know, I was working at True. I mean, some days were like 21 hour days. And then I I moved on to Naha. I was so fortunate. I worked for one of the the greatest pastry chefs in the country, um, Craig Harshevsky, And he taught me the value of you know, you can be so talented, you can be a certifiable badass in, in the industry, and you don't need to be a jerk to do it. You know, you don't need to shout, you don't need to throw things, you don't need to denigrate anybody. He was one of the most patient, intelligent, thoughtful shafts I've ever had in my life. And I, you know, from him, I got that sort of, that sort of input of, oh, that's, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Because he was just so gracious and so generous in all of his his education for me both you know emotionally and obviously in practical application Fifteen years later, I'll still call him Chef. If, yeah. <laughs> like he's ne- never, That will
2: never change. <laughs> that will never change. I will never call him by his first name.
3: <laughs> <laughs> what do you miss most about, about Chicago? Oh, everything. I adore Chicago. Chicago is one of my favorite cities in the entire world. The people are amazing. The city is amazing. And growing up in California... I didn't know how much I needed seasons until I got there because, you know, you don't realize like when you're a kid and you're watching the, you know, you're watching the Christmas story and you're watching all of these movies and stuff and you see these, this snow and, and things like that and all the things that sort of represent the holidays and you look outside and it's palm trees in 85, you know, you don't realize how like it's sort of, it feels a little monotonous and robbing of like all of these beautiful holiday experiences that you, you've been told you're supposed to have. So the first time I saw snowfall in Chicago, I cried. I mm. absolutely just broke down crying because it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. You get, you know, real real weathered during winter and as soon as the weather hits like 55 It's like, oh, shorts, shorts and flip-flops. Oh my God, this is the greatest weather I've ever experienced. I just, I love that Chicago, all of its seasons are the most of that season you will ever experience in your life. Winter is the most winter you've (laughs) ever known. Summer is, the you know, it's like 90 degrees and 90% humidity. And then fall is like everything sort of smells like chimney and like leaves. And it's just incredible. And it's crisp. And everybody's cheeks are a little bit flush. And spring, literally, you go out in spring. And for some reason, after all of the winter that you've been through, you're rewarded with tulips just blossoming. Tulips and daffodils blossoming. All over the city, it's it's incredible. It's an incredible place. I haven't even talked about the food. The food are- is <laughs> What are some,
2: yeah? What are what are some of your go to spots in, in Chicago? I know I know our, our listeners always love
3: hearing chefs' favorite restaurants. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been there in so many years, unfortunately, that I feel like any place I named would be like, oh, that's. That doesn't make me go spending money. When I was there, obviously, you know, there was, there's always a Alinea. Linia was, mm-hmm. linia was the reason I moved to Chicago because at the time I was still living in Orange County and working at a country club and kind of, you know, scooping cookies and making brownies and stuff like that. And I longed for more. And I went into a, an establishment that I think is few and far between now. I think they're called bookstores. <laughs> what is that? What are a bookstore? <laughs> I, of course, went to the cooking section. And the food that I was seeing, I'd never known possible. It was over the top, too much, incredible. And I thought, wherever this is happening, I want to be. So I flipped to the front of the book, saw that Alinea was located in Chicago. And the next week, I had a plane ticket. And I moved there. I didn't have a job. I didn't have I didn't have friends. I didn't have family. I didn't have connections. I just knew that I wanted to be there. That kind of started the whole fine dining, beautiful career I've had. And again, you know, it's all based on leaps of faith. Yeah.
2: Well, you took another leap of faith after to Chicago and, and headed to Vegas, which we obviously <laughs> have to talk about. I, I would imagine a city like that where everything, everything is over the top. So much opulence. It's hard to make your mark there, but you certainly did that. How would you describe that chapter of your career in, in Vegas? Amazing.
3: I left Chicago because I felt like my career was getting very pinpointed into fine dining. And I had to start thinking about, like, what was the overall game plan? What was the retirement plan? You know, and generally speaking for chefs, a lot of times that involves getting some kind of hotel experience. The best hotels in the country are in Vegas. Moved to Vegas, um, worked for the brilliant Sean McClain. And what I learned in Vegas was, you know, like in Chicago, it was one of those things of like, guys... We're going to have a real crazy night. There's like 75 covers. Buckle (laughs) down, button it up. It's going to get wild. And in Vegas, that that number shoots to like 600. It was an incredible experience because coming from Chicago and like all of the fine dining experience I had from there, a lot of it didn't translate. You know, a lot of it because in Vegas, you need to be able to make someone happy that's coming in from Boise and you need to make someone happy that's coming in from Hong Kong. You need to learn a style that is inventive and interesting and makes people want to come back for more, but also is incredibly familiar for humans in general, you know, not based on regionality in any way, shape or form.
2: We have next stop on your culinary uh, adventure was Beverly Hills, where you were the executive pastry chef at the peninsula. During that time, you're named one of the best up and coming female chefs by CBS LA. So you're back in your hometown and, and you're getting that kind of recognition locally. What was that like? Surreal.
3: You know, when you're back of house, you sort of become accustomed to the fact that you're not, you know, you're not flashy. You're not front of house. You're not you're not going to be recognized. And that's OK. And you you accept that very early on as like you don't do it for the accolades. You don't do it for. The ego strokes you know being called out by name as best up and coming and like you know woman to watch and all this stuff it was it was it was really weird <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was really cool and really strange i mean obviously like super flattering and and yeah i i couldn't quite wrap my head around around how it happened because i was you know just sort of plugging away doing doing my job every day, doing what I, what I liked, which is I think even more of a, a statement of how awesome it was. Cause I really wasn't trying for anything. You know, I was just trying to do what I thought was cool.
2: Well, I mean, one of the very cool things that you did was a, an award winning dessert, Creation experience, I guess you could say the the Faberge egg. For anyone that doesn't know, can you kind of describe this dessert experience and, and how that brainchild
3: came to be in your mind? So it came to me right after I left Vegas, which is probably why it was so over the top. Um, you know, because I still had the glitz rattling through my head, and I wanted to create a piece of art that. Involved the guest, you know, that was interactive. And as a child growing up, my, you know, I was the youngest child, I was the only female. So my education and my betterment was my mother's only concern. So literally every weekend was a museum, an arboretum, you know, a show, a, you know, like a musical, a play, something like that. But mostly museums. I heard the words, don't touch that. a lot growing up. So I wanted to sort of create this piece of art that was, was breaking a barrier of like fine art and don't touch that. Right. I wanted to create something incredibly beautiful, incredibly bespoke that was intentionally given to you to smash, take a hammer and smash it, destroy it because there's something sort of beautifully cathartic about destroying something beautiful, you know? And in that, ended up becoming the art in and of itself. It sort of became performance art in a way. And yeah, because at that point in time, everyone was doing, you know, like chocolate spheres that you melt with something hot going over. And I thought that's sort of passive. That's not really involving yourself in the process of the art. And I thought, smashing it, that's that's just too fun. And I involved all of my cooks with it because... As a chef, I really, I believed it was my responsibility to train my cooks how to be chefs. You know, it's not enough to just give them recipes and say, do this over and over and over again, because I said so. It's my job to teach them how to move forward in life and become, you know, chefs themselves. And so each and every single one of my cooks would, you know, be given their own eggs every day to design in any way they thought that they liked you know like any color scheme any you know any pattern they wanted so every single one was different and unique and I loved that about it and it sort of flies in the face of everything that is pastry because you know everyone's always saying like well consistency it's all about consistency and for me it's like yeah consistency is incredible and it's absolutely it's fundamental but at the same time art isn't And a person's artistic eye certainly isn't. Everyone gets their own reality. And as a result, everyone is going to paint a little different and think a little different. And that should be that should be sacred, too.
2: How long did it take to to paint each one?
3: Well, some of them, like the more sort of elaborate ones, like the there's one on on I think my Instagram that's you know it's all got little flowers on it and stuff like that, and that one probably took two hours, you know, and it's it's fun because then it's like break it, smash it, you know, <laughs> eat it, yeah. There's there's something about like because because all chefs do do art that's meant to be destroyed, right? We just don't say it. There's something very beautifully literal about it that I like. And what was uh, what was inside when when
2: you smashed it open?
3: Ah, so that changed. That changed okay. from season to season. So it could be anything from you know, kind of like a pumpkin pie to black forest. To it was always something. Rather, I tried to make it always something very relatable, very, very human, right? So these flavors that have been around and are classics, and the reason they're classics is because they're good. Because in a lot of ways, you know, what I learned in Vegas was this template, if you will, of I want to make things 80% classic and representational and everyone will find it delicious. And 20% is that little adventure that little come with me let me try and show you something a little bit new because people are a lot more likely to go along with you on that let's explore something new if you give them if you go most of the way for them right i felt like the the 20% in the fabergé egg was smashing it so <laughs> <laughs> was destroying it the 80% was the was the very familiar very classic very classic filling. So it was, I mean, mean, it was layer cakes. It was death by chocolate. It was, I mean, it was all kinds of stuff. It was basically a pinata.
2: I love that. You mentioned kind of your, your experiences growing up, you know, going to museums, don't touch that, you know, a lot of that, but what about your food experiences growing up? What was that like as a kid?
3: So when I was a kid, I went to the doctor and this was, you know, the eighties and the doctor took my blood and said, well, she's got really high cholesterol. She's got really? strangely high cholesterol for a child. So, you know, told my mom, you need to watch out on them. So from that point on, I was not allowed to have sugar. I was not allowed to have fat. I was not allowed to do anything other than run cross-country most days. Then as a result, Thanksgiving is like my favorite holiday, right? Because, you know, it was the only time of year I got to have... Stuffing and mashed potatoes and like, and dessert and all of these things. You know, I, I distinctly remember turkey burgers. That looked like hockey pucks. (laughs) I still, to this day, can't eat ground turkey because it's like makes my eye twitch thinking (laughs) about the hockey pucks when I was a kid. I had basically like the super macrobiotic diet as a as a kid. Plot twist. Now I'm a pastry chef. I mean, was
2: was that similar to, you know, the egg idea in that all of your life you're not allowed to have sweets and you're finally an adult and you're like. I'm going to just make sweets all the time. Oh, oh yeah,
3: for sure. Yeah, there is, there is definitely a level to me working out my own therapy via my, <laughs> <laughs> via pastry. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I'm working through some stuff. That's all it is.
2: What about Halloween when you were a kid? Were you allowed to have any of that candy or, or was that off limits as well?
3: I don't know if this still happens, but when I was a kid, there was an urban legend of like there's there's razor blades in the candied apples. <laughs> yeah, you know, there was a lot of that. Yeah, you know, so I like remember. food was poison. You know, there's going to be like rat poison on stuff, and and like you know all of these like horror stories that like parents told each other. You know, at little league, and it sort of disseminated through the kids. So I was allowed to have a little bit of it, but basically as soon as I got home from trick-or-treating, it was confiscated and then (laughs) doled out if I did something good. Halloween to me was like a very mixed bag of emotions because I loved the dressing up. The dressing up was more important to me than pretty much anything. I mean, there's a picture of me that I still have of I really wanted to be a butterfly that year. And my mom Did not have a butterfly costume, but what she did have was a clown costume, like a clown pumpkin costume. Basically the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. So she put me in that and the entire night I threw a temper tantrum from basically start to finish. So every picture of me from that night is my face just completely mid tantrum, like sobbing my eyes out I mean just massive cheeks just completely distorted tears everywhere like smearing the pumpkin makeup like hilarious and of course my brothers are both having a great time so they've got their arms around me and hugging me as I'm sobbing in every photo (laughs) Stephanie chats with us
2: about the latest season of Halloween baking championship that's coming up next Uh, I think it's a perfect segue to Halloween Baking Championship, which uh, the finale airs this Monday. The show looks like a complete blast. I got to s- chat with Zach a few weeks ago. I mean, it seems like just being a judge on that show is is pretty much a dream gig, especially yeah. everything that we've just learned about you. I mean, did you ever imagine that, that that would be like part of your job?
3: Absolutely not. That was like dream come true of impossible dreams. You know, doing Halloween Baking Championship is a gift. It is absolutely not work. It is the greatest. It's like second Christmas. It's absolutely <laughs> my most favorite. It's my, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Like it's so amazing from the costumes to the incredible cakes that these bakers do. It's absolute perfection. I can't, I can't say enough about it. And then of course you've got Zach and you've got Carla. Carla, who is mm-hmm. essentially human Glitter, Like she's Sunshine. the nicest. Yes. Glitter is a good, yes. <laughs> she's just the greatest person you've ever met in your entire life. So getting to work with her and Zach every day and then adding to that, put on costumes and kind of feel yourself in this space is is just amazing.
2: Who do you think takes the, the characters and the costumes like the most seriously on That's set? That's this one, right here.
3: Really? Right here. <laughs> I go a little Daniel Day-Lewis on it, I gotta <laughs> be honest. So this last season, we were told it's, you know, it's all 80s, right? It's an 80s-themed homage to the awesome, iconic 80s slashers. And mm. so... And, it, and that was true for our, quote unquote, normal dress as well. So I decide to go to every thrift store, vintage <laughs> store in Los Angeles and in central California to buy all 80s attire from the 80s. So every single piece I'm wearing is actually from the decade and represents, like, and I wanted to really, like, kind of hone in on these different vibes from the 80s, you know? So there's, like, the Adam Ant, and there's Dynasty, and there's Pretty in Pink, and there's all these different sort of, you know, ilks from from within that singular decade that are so spectacular. And all of them are kind of over the top and feel a little costuming nowadays. But yeah, I I went in. I think that's incredible.
2: You were the one going out, you know, sourcing your costumes. You didn't leave it up to the wardrobe
3: department. No, no. I love homework. I love it. I love it. Give me a task to do, especially a fun task. Like, hey, go find like basically everything that has shoulder pads in it (laughs) in the Los Angeles area the poofier the better (laughs) yeah the poofier the better I mean it was next okay for the finale I don't want to I don't want to go telling tales out of school but the outfit that I found for the finale is next level I can't say too much because I want it to be a surprise but oh my god it was the most expensive thing at any vintage store I've ever seen in my entire life. (laughs) Let's just say it's purple. It's leather. It's it's beaded and embroidered. That's a good tease. I
2: I would say. So everybody's going to have to tune in to see exactly uh, what that looks like um, on screen. But I mean, obviously the, the costume, the hair and makeup are like you said, next level. Uh, How, I mean, how long are you spending in the chair for this show when you're, you know, getting all decked out like that?
3: It depends. So for, you know, some of the more tame looks, which I'll say, (laughs) let's just say like Carrie, You know, the the sort of reference to, you know, Miss Spacek. That was probably an hour. That was pretty easy because most of that was just putting on on a wig and then dousing me in blood. However, something like the clown costume, which is coming up, that took about three hours because that's a full prosthetic mask. That's a bald cap. That's then hair on top of the bald cap. I mean, it's... It goes on. Last season, I was the Sasquatch supermodel, which was one of my favorite costumes (laughs) of all time. Because again, I get too into character. I heard that I was going to be Sasquatch supermodel and I immediately started kind of diving into like, okay, what does that mean? How am I going to play that? And I decided on it being first and foremost, a supermodel who doesn't fully understand that they are a Sasquatch. You know? <laughs> so like trying to plug their new like body spray available at any drugstore, kind of like not with it, just like fully committed to being a supermodel. And like the appearance of the Sasquatch was sort of secondary. That took about four hours to get into. Wow. And that was one of the hottest things I've ever (laughs) worn in my life. It was about, I want to say it was like three wigs and two beards, head to toe fur, like a onesie jammy kind of situation. It was a lot. Well, we
2: should talk about the contestants as well. I mean, what impresses you the most about just what you're able to see them you know, complete during this this competition. It is
3: astounding to me what a testament to the human spirit it is, because it is not easy. You know, and, and I, I get a lot of, you know, people asking me like, what's wrong with their time management? It's like, this is the hardest situation I could ever imagine putting a person in and then saying, Now make a beautiful cake, please. It is an uphill battle. And the fact that they are able to do these incredible works of art in that amount of time with cameras in their face, cords on the floor, it's a new kitchen that they they don't have, you know, that muscle memory for yet. So it's just, it's sheer pushing through. It's incredible. I am always astounded at what they are able to come up with. It's earth shattering.
2: I'm always intrigued by, you know, how something can look so scary, but also delicious at the same time where do you draw the line when it comes to like the creepy culinary creations
3: because it's sort of it's surrounded with the ultimate the overall theme right the ultimate like it needs to be slashy scare scary there's a lot of leeway there right Mm -hmm. but for me it's like the weird gummy textures (laughs) that just i look at and i just can't it grosses it literally it's like too real yeah it breaks the barrier of like you know suspension of disbelief right like i it looks so real that i am put off
2: (laughs) uh well we're so excited to see the finale i know i know you're also a judge on the upcoming buddy versus duff holiday special um can you give us a little little teaser on that what can we expect for that special
3: Oh my God. Okay. What you can expect is nothing short of miraculous. I was picking my jaw up off the floor every single day. What these artists are capable of doing is it's just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It is tantamount to witchcraft. I don't know at what point it's going to line up, but there are some cases that they do that literally made me like want to cry they were so beautiful and so intricate and so perfect i mean it's just it's hard to believe that it's cake
2: No, it's uh, it's incredible to see uh what they can accomplish as well it's been so much fun uh, chatting with you about your accomplishments we're going to wrap things up with a little rapid fire round and then we have one final question for you so gummies or chocolate chocolate favorite late night snack cold pizza and ranch Uh, speaking of pizza uh chicago deep dish or new york style
3: new york sorry chicago (laughs) it's not pizza it's quiche
2: (laughs) (laughs) agreed Or, or casserole or something i don't know uh how do you like your coffee or tea black tricks or treats
3: treats favorite breakfast pastry ham and cheese croissant favorite scary movie uh, how to lose a guy in ten days. Uh,
2: <laughs> that's a favorite scary movie. <laughs> it's terrifying, it's uh, terrifying. I, mean, I, love, I love that movie. I mean, I will watch that whenever it is on. Both time. of them gaslighting <laughs>
3: each other. It's that, if you, I mean, if no that's not that realistically it's, terrifying. It's a psychological that's a real <laughs> life stuff right there. All right. Uh, what do you listen to while baking? Generally, Motown. Okay. Anything that I can wiggle to, I can dance to, has a good rhythm. I honestly, I love Kanye West for cooking. Yeah. And I really, if I'm in like a certain mood, rage against the machine. Oh, okay. That's that's All the right. spectrum. That's right the, there. That runs the gamut there. Yeah. Easiest and hardest part of your job? Editing. The creative process. Just yeah. When When to stop. When to put your... <laughs> When to put your tools down and walk away. So
2: that's the hardest. What's the what's the easiest? The creative process. OK, <laughs> <laughs> well, we have our final question for you. This is a, a question that we ask all of our guests on Food Network Obsessed at the very end. And as you might expect, every single answer is completely different uh, based on the person that we are asking. So the, the question is, what would be on the menu for your perfect, ideal food day? So we want to know what you're eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, of course, dessert, any snacks you want to you mix in. You don't have to. Um, there are basically no rules. You can travel where ever time travel um, spend however much money anyone can cook it for you so it is your day and the floor is yours breakfast
3: leftover Chinese food from the okay. night before with a Friday prepared by Chrissy Teigen okay lunch you know I, I love hiking hiking is one of my favorite favorite things to do I've climbed Mount Whitney now a few times um, and mm-hmm. I'm wanting to climb Kilimanjaro so I'm gonna say wow cold fried chicken Okay, on top of Kilimanjaro. Wow, goals! That's, I'm setting goals right now.
2: That's a pretty epic, you know, picture that you yeah. just painted. It's a little bit Ina Garten,
3: you know, <laughs> of like cold fried chicken is one of the <laughs> best things. It's that little bit of comfort food with a little bit of like life goals. Um yeah. dinner, anything from anywhere in Tokyo. I've eaten some of the most astounding food, and I'm not being hyperbolic, in 7-Eleven in Tokyo. Yes. <laughs> it's wild. Like, anywhere, I've eaten amazing foods underneath train tracks in Tokyo. I, so, like, the basement of malls, subways. I've eaten the most incredible meals of my entire life in Tokyo. So, I would say anything, anything from anywhere in
2: right. the
3: entire city. And I'll di- probably be fine. I'm- Nothing's off limits What are you having for dessert? Street crepes uh, in Bangkok
2: 25 cents What's in them?
3: what do you want to be
2: in Uh, (laughs) what do you want to be in them (laughs) it's it's bangkok man nothing is
3: off the menu you know what i mean you can (laughs) it's true (laughs) yeah the street food in bangkok is like just incredible you can go days weeks months without ever sitting in a restaurant it's it's one of the the greatest food cities in the world
2: well, I could keep talking to you forever about, about food and, well, and travel. let's do that. Let's have a part two. We'll, yeah. we'll just book it now. Why can't um, we just talk forever? What's wrong with that? <laughs> I'm good with it. Might lose a few people, but, you know, we'll, we'd have a great time. We'll talk to the, the powers <laughs> that be, but for now, we'll, we will say uh, farewell. And thank you again so much for, for sharing you. all your this stories. This is so great. Next
3: time, ASMR, you know, yes. I'll just start crinkling things, <laughs> sipping Love coffee. It.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, being a pastry chef sounds like a pretty sweet life. A huge thanks to Stephanie for joining us. You can catch her on the season finale of Halloween Baking Championship this Monday, October 25th at 9 8 Central on Food Network and streaming on Discovery Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?